to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. By the time Tim Adams had reached the end of his first year as a professional chef, working in a restaurant kitchen, he came to a crazy realisation. He had cooked more meals in those 12 months than most people prepare in an entire lifetime. And for a while, working hard with luminaires like Alastair Little and Marco Pierre White, and even appearing on television with Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, gave Tim a constant buzz. But after one family holiday, he realised that if he continued on that 70-hour-a-week path, he would find himself in a destructive spiral of doom. And that is why, in 2012, he turned himself into what he calls a free-range foodie, offering a variety of services which draw on his lifelong love of foraging, game and field sports, as well as his considerable culinary experience. Now, I'm fascinated by the plethora of jobs and opportunities linked loosely under the hospitality genre. I've employed hundreds of chefs over the last 17 years and seen many look for a career change when the reality of working every weekend starts to have an impact on family life. So when the opportunity to interview Tim cropped up, looking at just how diverse his income streams are, I was excited to find out more. And this edition gives you a snapshot of what it's like to have a varied freelance career. From running a chef's shed, created from old telegraph poles and pallets, to organising ethical, small bag, foodie shoot days and more. And incidentally, these small days are supporting a much bigger movement, helping feed 600,000 people in the last four years through Tim's work with the Country Food Trust. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Tim Maddens, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I say joining me, I'm actually joining you because you've kindly opened your kitchen. Well, I mean, I have, but I have failed to offer you anything to eat. uh, True, although, yeah, but I've I've got a drink and and tea. They're both drinks, aren't they? They are both (laughs) drinks. You've got two drinks. Yeah. None of them are alcoholic, even though it's Friday. So well done, you. Yes, thank you. Um, And uh, we are in Devon in Yarkham. What what, what do I need to know about Yarkham? I think it's my first visit. uh, Top things about Yarkham. What are they? I've got Um, one for you because I just drove past the sign. Okay. Do you know what's on the sign? As a local, maybe you don't. Tell me, tell me. Devon's uh, Town of the Year. Do you know the year? No. 2005. Well, there you go. Written on the sign as you That's come in. before I moved here. <laughs> I, I, have you improved? Maybe it could, it could have improved or um, I don't and, know. And it's, up to, it's upgraded itself from a village to a town as well. That's quite impressive. It could, it could have said village. It might have It was the village. year that got me and okay. the fact that we were in Devon because I hadn't appreciated I'd gone over the border. And I just wondered how it qualified. Would you know what makes well, it the village slash town of the year? Uh, no, I wouldn't have a clue. No. I expect some people got together and decided. <laughs> there was probably a national or a county-wide competition to yes. decide. 
side and uh, whoever was judging it was a local <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was Yarkham's turn <laughs> any any massive selling points for Yarkham that um, I should know well, it's being a here? fantastic view it's, it's a true. lovely place to live you're just yeah. over the border from Somerset so you're not very far um, you're um, very closely connected to the main trunk road in the area which is the A30 <laughs> or the A303 and uh, it's uh, part of the old estate that used to belong to Sir Francis Drake so oh, there you go. go see good I should have given you a bit more warning as well that was going to test you on your historical knowledge of well I think you know I, I, mean, I don't feel like a local I mean I have lived here for seven years but I still don't feel like a local in Yarkham it takes a bit longer than a bit that longer. I think yeah, yeah. beautiful the, village uh, so highly recommend it yeah do you know how many people live here doesn't look very big. I just drove I, through it. It was, it was about at half least, a mile. There's at least a hundred of us. Brilliant. At least that sets the context. A hundred people in a little village, and we are overlooking beautiful rolling hills. Yeah, that is the. Um, well, you're sort of in the Yarty Valley now, and then the valley you can see beyond, out of the back window there, that's the Axe Valley. Um, so if you keep going and follow that along, then you end up at Lime Regis. Do you? Okay. Yeah. So that sets the context beautifully. Sorry for everybody listening who can't see uh, which way you're pointing. Yes. To, but, <laughs> I've, got, uh, I've got a great face for. Radio yeah, as well, yeah perfect. Likewise, good. We should um, we should probably crack on. So you you call yourself the free range foodie, and I wasn't really aware. Apparently, um, I wasn't aware of this term around portfolio careers until I looked it up last night. I was like, "What's a portfolio career?" So apparently, you are a free ranging uh, portfolio career person or portfolioist. Is that true? What yeah. is it? Well, a portfolio career is something that sounds fantastic from the outside, um, and actually just means you're free you're between to, jobs. You're free to starve. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so it's it's the perfect trade off. It's the old old-fashioned self-employed trade-off which is you when you're busy it's great it's fine everybody's happy you're your own boss you know you're in charge of your own destiny and all of that stuff uh, when it's quiet or you haven't got much on or you're between projects it's nothing except horrendously frightening because you you know you can't stop paying your mortgage right so it's you know it's like that but then at least that's just a bit more honest, really, because you could be working for someone that you worked for for 20 years and they could go under and then you'd be in the same boat. So at least you're responsible for your own car crashes. Yeah, true. So, uh, and the reason that I was intrigued to come and chat to you, I suppose, is I've spoken to lots of chefs, but they tend to be employed or have their own restaurants. I've spoken to farmers, uh, restaurateurs, all sorts. But I suppose, yeah, we hadn't really looked at, because I love the world of hospitality, but somebody, yeah, how do you make a living in hospitality without having a job? So you do lots and lots of different things, basically, <laughs> yeah. under the umbrella of hospitality, food and drink. Is that yeah. a fair Yeah, that is summary? that is totally fair. So I, yeah, okay, I kind of riff on stuff around food. Um, the bulk of my work, I suppose, is, is private chef work. So I'll go and work for someone in their house or do a, a little event for some people in their, in their home or in a holiday home or, you know, in a village hall that sort of thing um some pop-up stuff that we promote ourselves i say we and are that's pretty much me although the brilliant uh, mrs madams does do a great job um of keeping me on my toes with administrational matters um and then you know we'll occasionally be doing a bit of food media around that Perfect. Well, we're going to come into the specifics, I guess, on some of the stuff you've done. And it was actually a thanks to Stephen Lamb who introduced us, uh, wasn't it? Who you've also, I know you do some pop-up stuff with as well. So. Lambo, what a legend. Lambo, thank you. And he's been on the podcast, so people can go off and listen. Um, but thank you, Stephen, if you're listening. Um, but your career started a little bit more traditionally. So you were a chef in the early days, worked with some fairly well-known... <laughs> is that wrong to say in the early days? Are you still a chef? That, <laughs> no, I don't. I like to describe myself as probably a bit poncy, but I like to describe myself as a sort of chef 
step in recovery, really. Right. Um, I've I've been I was addicted to hospitality. I mean, you love the hospitality industry. I love the hospitality industry. It is full of brilliant, vibrant, wonderful characters. It's also full of abysmal and appalling working conditions, long hours, and terrible pay. But that doesn't matter when you're in it and you love it, right? Um, but I think there's a line where uh, perhaps, like most things. Uh, even with a caffeine addiction, right? It can be great to get you going in the morning, but it's really not a good thing long-term. And I think I just get a bit too obsessed with what I'm doing. Um, and having spent sort of 20 years in and around restaurants, it was definitely time for a bit of a change. So in those uh, early days before you realised that yeah. it was um, occasionally hell on earth and occasionally wonderful, <laughs> when you thought it was just wonderful, where did it start? Who were you working with in, in the early days? I'm right in saying oh. you were up in London working oh, with... Oh, God, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I did the Alistair traditional Ferguson. thing. So I went to college in Salisbury. Um, uh, you know, I did that, which was attached to Southampton at the time. I don't know if it still is, but we did that, which was great. And then went and worked for a bit at Centre Parks in Longleat Forest, you know, had a great, great know, fun time I have a couple there. of young children. We don't go anymore, but yeah, back You've a few there. years. So spent go. a good so few weeks did that there. for a bit. Decided that, you know, 70-hour weeks for the amount of money I was getting paid uh, as a junior wasn't really kind of feeling like a long-term thing. So I binned it off and went skiing for a couple of years out in France. Lovely. Where I didn't earn much money, but I had a great time and immersed myself quite nicely in some French food and, and a lot of skiing. So that was quite good um came back got a very uh, did a very brief spell um with babington house which was quite a new venture at the time the head chef there left and as you do you know in the in the chefing world if you like the head chef and they leave you tend to follow them so i wandered off up to london and worked with him for a couple of uh, well a short spell three or four weeks i think um at st john's for fergus henderson and then a guy rocked up there and this is i mean i love this about london was the guy who rocked up there to take the job from me i had been filling in for the guy who'd left and this guy was coming to take the job uh, and uh, as I walked, as he walked in and we got him set up and showed him through the service and got chatting and he said, oh, so where are you going from here? And I said, well, <laughs> I haven't got a job this afternoon, mate. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, look, you should go and talk to Alistair because they haven't found anyone where I've come from. And I said, Alistair who? He said, Alistair Little. I said, oh, okay. He's a guy I, I sort of recognise because him and Gary Rhodes and, um, you know, Mr. Turner and a few other people were doing some interesting sort of slightly more... Uh, uh, trad stuff I guess through the late 80s 90s and early noughties when everything in London was pretty much sort of haute cuisine you know feathered sauces plate on a food with a protractor and it was pre-tweezers but we were heading that way and um, I was not into that at all so I quite liked the the more rustics side of things so went and had a chat with Alistair Little got a fantastic job as a chef to party in their uh, Lancaster Road branch which was cool with a guy named tony and a sous chef called luigi who was mental but also very cool so i uh, had a baptism of fire there for about a year i think and then i went and did a couple of projects with white Starline, with a guy named adam clark who was known as wolfie and he ran kitchens for marco pierre white under uh, timmy payne who anyone in the industry at the time from london will probably recognize some of those names um from there, I went and did an independent project with Tony and Florence, who'd run Alistair Littles. And then from there, I went and worked for a very short time for Mark Hicks. Didn't get on with the head chef at Rivington Grill, so I just took my luggage and left. Went back to work for Adam, who was by this point at the One Oldwich Hotel. And I was I ended up as junior sous chef there, I think. Um, and I sort of, that was the only time I ever planned a career move in my, in my entire career. I thought, I've done all this stuff. 
it's all been about me and food and doing the cool things I want to do. I need to do something grown up where I learn some management and work for a bigger company. So I went to work for the One Oldwich Hotel and spent sort of five months bumping my head against a brick wall as I sort of realised that there was nothing creative about this job and that it really didn't suit me. And then Mark Gregory, who's a really good guy, he runs the Le Chef brand. Right. Do you know the Denny's brands yep. guys make all the cool chef gear? He's back in... Um, at New Zealand now, but he was chef of the year here and in New Zealand. Uh, really nice guy and uh, and didn't have to do this at all. But he said, Tim, you know, you, this is not for you. This is really not for you. But while you're here, um, I think you're a good guy. Could you just come up with and run the pre and post theatre menus? Uh, and I was like, yeah, okay. So I basically got to develop with the other chefs there. Everyone sort of chucked some dishes in the hat, but I got to look after it. We sort of created um, once a fortnight and developed this menu that would run for a fortnight pre and post theatre. And then that was my main responsibility to look after that. And I, that was perfect. I did that for, I think, another year. And then a friend of mine, Fiona, who also been at Alistair Littles, she was running the catering for the Ferrari team sponsors in the F1 world she gave me a shout and said look do you want to come and do this for a year because i need someone so i did that and did it for another year right that sounds quite glamorous I, i'm just thinking of the sales call so uh, sorry what is it again f1 who's which team ferrari yeah 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 was that traveling yeah. around like the great circus that travels around the show yeah so we would do europe so right. um i work for a uk company called Procar international and they build the they call them motorhomes which is a bit of a euphemism right so it's, it's, this one was seven arctic lorries stacked up on top of each other with a you know one of the arctic lorries was this amazing kitchen that we designed and built um and then we had this two-floor glass-fronted building with offices either side and a restaurant on each floor. That would literally go from circuit to circuit. Exactly, Gosh, yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Um, but, I mean, glamour. The thing about glamour is it's not real, right? Um, so it was interesting and fun for the first year. I did it a second year, which was great. But by the end of the second year, I was like, I've done this. Who were you cooking for? The uh, drivers or the occasionally, corporates? Occasionally, or? mostly guests, guests of the corporate the entertainment kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. So um, Philip Morris Tobacco's at the time, Martini, um, a couple of other you know big brands, Electrolux and people like that. So they were there and um, they wanted to impress people. So they would bring them into the palette. And you were given a lot of freedom to dish-wise there? Yeah, so I mean, to, to a degree, to a degree. I mean, the second year, Fiona left and they brought in a, um, an Italian head chef, this guy called Vincenzo. Um, he was a different style of cook, uh, I guess. Um, and, you know, he liked carving fruit. I felt like the, there were various reasons that it wasn't going to work long-term right. uh, with him and, and he felt the same about me. <laughs> so so uh, we politely coughed and separated at that point. Fine. But all the way through that then, you were naturally drawn to uh, the more creative side. I know, you know, some of the menus there were sort of almost changed on a daily basis. Yeah, time, not, yeah. not probably so much with the F1, but with some of the other restaurants. Uh, and that was your natural tendency. Less the formulaic kind of make the same stuff every night and more the what ingredients are coming through the door today and what can we make with it. Is that yeah, fair? Yeah. So I don't know when, um, I, in fact, I don't know when it became the thing for chefs to write a menu and then order the stuff for the menu they'd written. But that is ask about face and it is for my I'm not going to apologise for my opinions about this because they're well thought out because um, <laughs> they're right is that what you were well, following me saying that? no 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 but they're opinions and I, you'll, you'll notice I didn't say whether they were right or wrong I said, you said they were well thought out and yeah. yeah they are well thought out but they're still my opinions um, and as uh, James Wetler 
once said to me, who I think is another guy who's had to do a yeah, podcast right for. Right in the early days, yeah, um, Cabrito goes. Yeah. He, uh, he and I had a dynamic relationship for a short period while he was a uh, sous chef for me at River Cottage. And uh, it, it, we had a discussion about opinions quite a lot because we had differing had opinions and we're both quite driven people, certainly very passionate about what we believe in. Um, and uh, he said to me, Tim, I used to have an Australian sous chef and he once said to me, the thing about opinions, Tim, is they're a lot like arseholes. Everyone's got one, they all stink, and nobody's interested in yours. <laughs> and I'll always remember Jane saying that to me because it was it was incredibly funny. Yeah. Um, but we are all entitled to our opinions. And I believe that you should get to know the producers of food near to you. You should get the best stuff that's available to you locally. And you should allow it to inspire your menu rather than the other way around. Mm. No, I would agree with that do you think it gets more challenging uh the bigger the restaurant gets yeah because you have to have more people with a certain level of skill and there are a shortage of those and there are a shortage of those that want to keep doing it because everyone wants to progress so the difficulty is that everyone wants to roll everything out mm. and uh, because that makes the person at the top more money but ultimately it just creates more problems and moves you further away from that honest offer that you wanted to, to mm. start with if that's your vibe yeah well I think I think um, no, it's probably not even there but I think a lot of I'm going to use the word proper chefs whatever that is love that style and proper restaurateurs I, I love the uh, concept of you know, we did it with our uh, fish, you know, it's just, you know, the day catch, the box, just bring in the fish, whatever you catch, bring yeah. it, and uh, we'll make something with it. And that's how I prefer to cook. My wife loves to follow a recipe. I love to just go into the cupboard open and see what's there. But actually, when you're trying to control margins in an incredibly tight industry and you've got a brigade and some of the brigade absolutely understand how to uh you know prepare and 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 work fast uh but but some of them just want to be told what they need to do and and if anybody makes a mistake you know you make you you lose one bit of fish and all of a sudden the margin on all the other 30 bits of fish you've made you yeah. it's a it's a it's a challenge uh i think but you had is that how it works because you were you ended up at river cottage in axminster yeah how, yeah how did i did that? yeah and well i mean i basically had this conversation yeah. that we're starting to have now every tuesday in, right. in a board meeting it was an incredible challenge uh, to set up that scenario and make it work. And we never made a huge amount of money out of it. Mm. I'll give you that. It did make money uh, and it did continue to do so. And, and shortly before I finished working for them, we got it up to three, three units, which were all at the time independently doing their own thing with their own microclimate of suppliers and producing their own menus with, within guidelines, which was pretty special. Mm, and, and at the time, I, I'm fairly convinced unique in, in the south of England anyway. Um, anyway, that was good fun. Did that yeah. for four and a half years with River Cottage and then did a couple of years teaching for them and wrote a book with them and then a bit of another book with them and had a lot of fun with Hugh and the guys and Gil and Steve uh, and all that lot. Back in the days. Yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In, in what, um, I don't know, just, yeah, it looked like a really nice... Uh, period for River Cottage, but there's a lot of you who uh, aren't there anymore, or, or just occasionally do some freelance stuff with them. This is what happens, else. right? I mean, uh, yeah, life moves on, and I think whilst it is true that you should never burn a bridge, you know, I also think you should build new ones. Mm. Uh, otherwise, life gets very dull. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So some people might recognise you because you did end up on the telly doing some cooking with Hugh, I think, didn't <laughs> I did you? did do a bit. Of, yeah, yeah, I was on the telly. Um, what happened when I left River Cottage was that my famous mutton chop sideburns went off and got a solo career and they're doing very well for themselves. Uh, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm a bit like, you know, I, I, so I, it was like when Take That Split Up, you know. Um, 
<laughs> I'm not doing so well. But I've never had the same goals as my sideburns. They always wanted to be rich and famous. Do they? Yeah. Do they move around different people, or have they? Are they oh, with they're specific abs- at the moment? They're abs- absolute media whores. <laughs> those two, I tell you. So, uh, was it post River Cottage that you went? You know what? I'm going to be my own boss now. Was that? Or did no, that, I did think that I, just evolve, or was it an overnight? Did something no, happen that triggered you to go? I'm yeah, going to do this on my own. My mental health and my all my my general well being. You know, I had a two year old son. Um, and I remember this very distinctly. So the pressure of four and a half years full on doing that had obviously started to get to me and I was beginning to not be able to see the way out of the woods anymore in terms of leaving work at home. And we were getting busier at River Cottage as well and there were multiple sites to manage and different people to have relationships with at work in terms of management structure. Um, And I was beginning to get diminished, I think, in terms of myself. And I had a holiday in Cyprus with some family um, and my little boy was there, obviously. And at the beginning of that holiday, I was Daddy was my name, and I was someone who was occasionally in the house. And at the end of that holiday, I was my son's father. And I distinctly remember stopping on my way into work when we got back from the holiday, and just thinking, "This, this is over. This stops now." Um, and you know, we always working. I, Oh, I don't want to argue over the sort of averages, but we're definitely doing 70 plus hours a week over uh, on an average and filming on days off and all of that stuff was voluntary, but you, you know, you want to pour yourself into stuff. And I realized I was being very selfish um, and that I was really not looking after myself either. Um, and so jacked it all in. And that was that. And that's yeah. why I wanted to come and have a chat with you because I see... You know, I've, I've been in hospitality for 20 years. I've employed and worked with hundreds of chefs. And uh, it feels like a sort of a, a, an odd contradiction for the industry that we spend so much time looking after other people and their mm. birthdays and their anniversaries and encouraging people to spend time with their families. Yet the industry, you know, used to give people an absolute kind of pasting. And not, not necessarily voluntarily, not because all the bosses are assholes, um, but no, just no, no, because... No. No. You know, the, the, the restaurants are naturally busy when other people are off. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Chefs naturally want the food to be amazing. And therefore, even if they're not being forced to, they want to be in when the deliveries are coming in the morning because yeah. they want to make sure the produce is amazing. And then they want to prep it and serve it that night. So it is an all-in industry. And I think the industry is is now trying really hard, whether just because it feels more morally obliged to huh. or whether... <laughs> <laughs> you cynic or whether because it's being demanded in the fact there's a shortage of chefs yeah. and it's kind of yeah, going I think that might be certainly from my perspective yeah, yeah probably probably both it's difficult for me because I'm a bit of a hippie I'm, I always think people should live an amazing life and I run a restaurant on a beach because I think yeah. life is about living on the beach and having a nice time but your vibe is the exception rather than yes, the rule exactly. and I think for my for my own personal journey and that's the only one I can talk about and I just yeah. said journey so you can all um, slag me off on social media for being poncy um, but for me I came off I was right at the tail end of the rock and roll chef stuff in London. And so I was indoctrinated into that. Work hard, play hard, get the job done. Don't think about how you feel. Just nail it, deliver it, carry on the next day. You're a machine, you're bulletproof, all that jazz. Um, And I think I sort of carried that selfish mental philosophy with me for quite a while and just ignored a lot of opportunities perhaps where I could have said, actually... Do you know what? I'm quite happy just running this one. Yeah. And I still haven't got a good sous chef. Can I please have another one? Yeah. Kind of thing. And I didn't. I was like, yep, yeah, let's get the next one done. Let's find some people. Let's make this happen. Let's do that. And um, and it was a self-destructive spiral of doom, is about the only way I can put it. And I'm very, very, very lucky that I have such a strong um 
life partner in my wife, Caroline, that um, she made me realize that before I fell apart because most chefs I know who've had similar experiences, and it's quite a few of them, both male and female, um, have a full-on breakdown mm. uh, and, and have to start all over again. And I think I was approaching that point. Uh, I consider myself lucky not to have gone over the edge. Yeah, and that, and that yeah, all too often, disappointingly, is the, is the trajectory. There is the other side that, particularly, I think, in, in the younger years, the amount that you can learn. I've had chefs go up and do stages and a, and a head chef who would work bonkers amount of hours when he was actually with me, you know, loving his job, and I'd be trying to encourage him to have time off, mm. and I'd enforce him, you know, like, right, the season's coming, you know, we're coming to have two weeks off, and he would go to London and volunteer in, like, a Michelin-starred restaurant for two weeks and work from, you know, dawn till dusk. But he'd come back buzzing with so many photos yeah, and yeah. videos and energised by what he'd seen. So I think you can learn an incredible amount. So I think it's 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 um it's wrong in some ways to tell young chefs, you know, just to focus on the hours and the money in those early years. I think if you can go up to London and you can get that experience and you can learn some stuff, do it. Yeah. But absolutely. I think the flip side is, yeah, don't do it too long. Yeah, maybe don't get party every night either. Yeah, um, and I, I think that's changing, you know, from what I hear, yeah, and I probably yeah. see it, is that they don't drink as much now. Well, they no. you know, they used to go out, you know, finish work and go out, and now they finish work and go to the gym. I know. You know? Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> I, I think that's yeah, really good. Yeah. I, I genuinely think that that is absolutely brilliant yeah. um, uh, and 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 it is to be applauded and God bless them, may, may they continue. And, and look, I mean, I don't, the reason I can cook the way that I can cook now is because of the broad experience that I've fitted into a very short period in my life. And one of the ways, because I teach a lot of cookery courses these days to people, not industry people, um, keen cooks. Um, and one of the ways I describe the sort of feel, the natural feel that all cooks have uh, when they're professional for how stuff's cooking and how it's getting on, that weird sort of force-like sixth mm. sense that you know something in the oven's nearly ready, um, is that by the time I'd been a professional chef working in my first restaurant kitchen for one year, I cooked more meals than most people cook in their entire lifetime. And if you multiply that onwards by a 20-year career in professional restaurant kitchens, that's 20 plus lifetimes of cookery instilled in one person before they're 30 or before they're 40 rather. So that's, you know, that's some seriously refined wisdom, right? I mean, you've kind of, you've worked with a lot of people who have opinions. You've picked up the ones you like, you've toyed with them, you've changed them, you tweet them, you've made them your own. You've experienced other people, you've read their books, you've had nightmares, you've had joyous, realistic situations occur. And all of that comes together and gets boiled down into this foodie culture that is yours. Mm. It's very true. So I will have a number of chefs listening to this and a number of people who are just interested in food. Um, but I guess, yeah, again, coming back to that, that reason to chat, I suppose, is that you don't, that, you know, it's not the only way you can get out of it. Fair play to you for kind of noticing that you weren't on the right trajectory and you wanted some some freedom. And as somebody who spent the last 20 years in hospitality, even at, at my level, you kind of go, man, restaurants are really hard. You know, there, yeah, is, there yeah, is another yeah. way out. Well, the thing about restaurants is they never stop being hard. Yes, it's, they don't. I love restaurants. I love them way too much. But the problem is you fix them. You make them well. Every day you make them well. And the next day they're sick again and you have to keep doing it. You have to keep doing yes. it. And as soon as you stop looking at it, as soon as you stop for one minute and take your eye off that ball, like you were saying, you've lost your margin or you've lost a key member of staff or something else horrendous has happened. You get a bad score on TripAdvisor or you get a bad result from a, yeah. from a hygiene inspection. You know, all the other sort of tedious nuts and bolts that go with running a beast that is a kitchen and a restaurant as a larger animal. Yeah. Um, it, it, 
Uh, yeah, I get. I just why can't it just be fixed now? I don't know. <laughs> it's rel- the, the word I always use. People always say, "How's it going? How's it going?" And I'm like, "It's relentless." Yeah. is the word yeah, I use. Yeah. It never stops and pauses for breath, but it is good fun. So, uh, having come out the other side now, and we'll talk a little bit about what you do. Um, different quality of life. You know, what do you say to you know the kind of younger chefs, the people you speak to? Is it is it all roses? It's kind of like, oh, I did that, now I do this, and I've absolutely nailed it, it's amazing. Or is it the reality, you know what, it's still challenging. There's still complications around being yeah. self-employed. Of course. Of course there are. I mean, number one, you're free to starve, right? No one's no one's driving work to your door every day. Okay, so that's, that's number one golden rule, is if you're not busy, make yourself busy, because if you're quiet, nothing's going to happen. You need to keep busy. And it's a rule I've had to learn a few times, and we still haven't quite got it nailed. And also, you know, you are number one sacrifice in any sort of downturn scenario. So if I'm, say, for example, working with two or three different corporate partners, we might be doing a bit of staff development with a pub chain, just some interesting foraging stuff with them, and then a couple of pop-ups. And then we might be doing... Um, some beer pairing, say, with a brewery or a, or a cider maker or something like that. As soon as something economic takes a little downturn or slows down seasonally or whatever, the first thing they get binned, as we all know in these businesses, is the externals, the consultants, the people like me that are sort of trying to make a living off other people's livings in a way. Um, and that's not because what we do isn't valuable, useful and, and worthwhile. It's simply that there's a cost that we can manage easily. Let's manage it. And also you get to the end of projects. So I did some brilliant work with the guys um, up at the Thatcher's Cider Empire in Somerset. And, you know, Martin Thatcher's a really nice guy. Um, and um, I did lots of, you know, food development project work with them which was all about matching their drinks to, uh, to 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 dishes and we took that around the country and we went to london with it and we did some loads of fun and games but after three and a half years of involvement with thatchers it was like time for someone new to come and do some stuff right so stuff naturally comes to an end as well so there's all of that then you've got the horrible horrendous nonsense of running your own business like oh that looks like money let's spend that on something no that's your tax you need that and then you know the oh i've got to run my own website and i've got to be able to do this and can i do that myself because it'll save me money oh now i need to do social media i mean who invented social media i want to find them (laughs) (laughs) i want to find them because it takes a lot of time and it's very difficult to always see the rewards so it's yeah it's not easy being on your own but but it is you and there's nowhere to hide and it's quite enjoyable and it's no more up and down than the life of running a restaurant. Um, but paying the bills can always be can fun. Be a challenge, yeah. Well, we might come back to that, but let's go into some of the stuff you do. So private chefing is one arm you've got. And yep. what's this, this is turning up, people having private parties. This is less corporate. Is this kind of yeah. more people's homes? They're having a party. They've got yeah. friends coming over. You turn up and, yeah. and throw them a party. Exactly. Or and that, that must be quite different because you're working walking you're used to commercial kitchens and yeah. rationales and all your toys and stuff like that is it different when you walk into somebody's domestic kitchen and go oh right okay this is well i it. mean some people have definitely um not been paying attention when the kitchen salesman's been there some of them are better equipped than you know than than any kitchen i ever worked in in london um albeit on a good smaller clients, scale <laughs> uh, and some of them are an arga that no one's lit you know and, and that can be 
challenging. Is that stressful? I'm just thinking. Yeah, walk, a chef walking into service in their own restaurant. All right, they might have a hundred people coming for dinner, but at least they know they've they've done the prep. They've got a sous chef and a CDP who's prepped for them all day, you know. And they're walking in and they know their kit works. But I don't know. I'm guessing that it's a limited amount. Of, presumably, you're not there the day before or three days before. Well, it depends or, on the contract. So some yeah. people will say, okay, we've got um, guests coming to the house uh, in the borders of Scotland for a week, and can you come and do five days? Fine, okay. you know. In which case, you settle in, get to know the kit, bits and pieces. Yeah. Other times, no, you're just literally parachuting in at five o'clock in the evening you've got a dinner party for 18 people and it, you know you want to nail it so you've got your prep done i've got a little semi-commercial kitchen on a little unit up up, up a little farm lane near here um uh, and uh that's fine we can get a lot of prep done there but i i never anymore i used to but i never anymore travel without a spare gas burner in the back of the van and a barbecue just in case i was gonna say is that off the back of have you had any that have gone horrendously wrong where you've had no. to particularly wing it or? no no we've always got away with it but um there have been moments yeah there were definitely it's in the early close. days there were moments where i was like okay <laughs> this <laughs> right. is going to be slightly is, more of a challenge yeah, than i'd have it. liked it to be yeah, yeah. cold yeah. cold starters cold dessert and a sandwich yeah, 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 yeah. Not, you're not quite that bad, but yeah, we've we've been close a few times, definitely. And again, a lot of people I speak to, um, particularly when they go out on their own, and it's a bit of consultancy or a bit of freelance work. You know, one of the challenging things is working out what you should charge and what you're worth. You alluded just now to kind of like you think you're taking a certain amount of money, but then you find there's a website to pay for and there's a tax man to pay mm. for, and, and you're quite um, straight in the fact that your prices for your various roles are on your website. Did it take a long time to work out what you should charge? For a day? Or? Well, you have to approach it from both directions. You've got to look at what you think the market will sustain. Um, and you've got to look at what the competition is doing. You might have much lower overheads than you, because when you're self-employed, your overheads are your mortgage and your, your vehicle and your kitchen, right? Um, and then also in the in the world of private chefing or, or, or uh, I suppose, event catering on, a, on the small scale of things, you've got a lot of competition who are not necessarily playing from the same rule book as you in terms of ingredients and... Um, that can be a challenge in terms of the you know people's vision of, of value. Um, generally, what I find is if a job's worth doing, they're prepared to pay the money to do it. Um, we have a lot of long-standing repeat clients, um, and that gives me confidence that what we're doing is is right. Uh, and we've structured it so that the first day is expensive because that in includes all of your prep time, um, unless it's a long event, and it includes all the emailing backwards and forwards and the arrangements and the administration that goes in and the doing your hygiene course every other year and all the bits and pieces. And then it gets significantly cheaper for the next day and it stays at that rate as long as you keep booking consecutive days. So we don't pick up a lot of work for six people having dinner because it it's cost prohibitive for us to do it people look at it and go actually no um but we have we also have a, a sort of a slightly cheaper option too so if if you want to book me for an evening and i'll come and hang out in your kitchen for a couple of hours with you and a bunch of mates and we will literally just eat for a couple of hours we call them kitchen tables and um they're they're good fun they're much more casual than a sort of traditional private chef booking if you like it's some. Um, it's a bit more sort of laid back and bantery. If yeah. You, you nice, know. yeah, I, yeah, yeah, that would definitely appeal more to me. But well, I if, you get, two, if you get ten mates together, markets, which is yeah. only five couples, right? That that comes in at fifty quid a head plus a bit bit of mileage and a few ingredients. I mean, it's not. No, I mean, you spend good. that at the pub, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, my mind's ticking. We'll we'll have a party, Tim. Um, <laughs> 
The Chef Shed. What's that? The Chef Shed. Oh, well, that was a... The Chef Shed's a brilliant thing. It's as much a concept as a place. Um, and, and it's kind of... It boils down nicely to what we were talking about earlier in the way that I like to cook. Um, so the Chef Shed is literally a shed on a friend's dairy farm at the end of that valley over there in the middle of the Axe Valley. Um, uh, Nigel and Emma Paris, they have a little dairy herd in the middle of Stockland. And they also have a glamping site uh, at a farm glamping which is really luxurious and they said we want you to do some stuff here can you do some stuff here and I said well I can't just you know I can't do it in the milking parlor you know we can't just sort of cook in someone's tent that's not going to work um and so they said oh well we thought we could build you a shed right and I was like yeah, I quite like the idea of a shed let's have a shed so got some old um telegraph poles and pallets and things that were lying about on the farm and built a shed into which I put a gas campfire uh, we have a little um you know, fireball outside and there's a little wood burning oven as well. And then obviously I prep the stuff in a nice uh, semi-professional kitchen up the road. And then we go down there and we do pop-ups in there most of the summer. Right. Yeah. These are just open to the public then? Yeah, Or is, yeah, this, or yeah. is this specifically the people that are staying on the... They can book if they want to, but we, right. we, we release the dates online. We send them out in our, nice. uh, in our newsletter and we advertise them on social media and right. it's 45 quid and you pay your money you bring your own drinks and we feed you four courses plus a load of nibbles so yeah i mean it's nice and everything's influenced by where we are so you know the chef shed is like a rubber mat it's like a a lead weight on the rubber mat of the local foodie scene everything just sort of rolls towards it and uh, i never make any money because i'm always like yeah let's have that that's gonna be great oh why have we got the world's most expensive turbot on the menu because it's Awesome. Yeah, nice. <laughs> That's the danger, isn't it? It's just too much fun. Well, where else can you roast four massive turbot in a wood-fired oven and stick them on the table as yeah, a course? That's awesome. you, you know, so is, it, is it literally kind of sharing style, long bench we, table kind of thing? I or? try and plate uh, sort of at least two of the four courses in case you've got people with greedy elbows. Right. Um, but we tend to feed people quite hard with the canapes too. So generally speaking, you know, it's, it's very good value. And uh, if it is served in a sharing format and we're normally quite careful about managing that yeah and do you tend to uh invite i'm thinking of you know the the, the likes of Stephen lamb and all the various contacts you must yeah. hopefully do you join up does it tend to be a collaborative kind of approach i do try i do try and get so steve has come and done a, a chef shed and and so have a couple of other people and we're um, every summer I think oh I need to put together a list of great other people to come and do this and then sort of that runs into the business angle of it a little bit and I go actually then I've got to pay them. <laughs> and I still, don't, spend the money I, still don't that, I still don't get that night off. So uh, maybe I'll do it myself. Um, but I will, I, I, yeah, I'm determined this summer, uh, if we're still here, to uh, do a few more collaborative evenings yeah, there because it sounds, is just a nice thing to do. Yeah, sounds amazing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look out for it before you move to Scotland. We'll come back to that. Um, and then another string to your bow is the field sports side of the business. Yeah, so what's yeah. that? How does that work? Well, I mean, I've always loved shooting yeah. fishing deer stalking in the same way that I'm in love with mushroom foraging and hedgerow foraging and seashore foraging I struggle to draw a definition between them I mean food comes from the environment in whatever way you want to do that there are good ways of doing that bad ways of doing that some people find certain types of it you know like lots of people would never pick their own wild mushroom right i get that lots of people would never want to kill their own animal but are happy to eat meat um, and lots of people never want to interact with a fish or eat another piece of wild garlic as long as they live um but 
one of the things when I left River Cottage was I was very kindly asked by Hugh if I would write one of the River Cottage uh, handbook series of books. And uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. And they said, which one would you like to do? I said, uh, I'll do game, shall I? Hasn't been done. And they went, yeah, okay, let's do that. I'm sure if anyone can write a River Cottage book on game, it'll be you. I don't think they realized that I'd never written anything before in my life. <laughs> I think Bloomsbury very quickly realized that. Um, but we got there in the end. How long did it take? Uh, I think we had 18 months to write it and photograph right. so it. So it took the, one month. It was two years. The 18th. Oh, no, you did actually start it early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it, I sort of dipped in and out. I mean, it's quite a good thing when you're self-employed to have a long-term project like that going on in the background because when you're quiet, you can crack on with that. Yeah. Um, so you... because of that, I'm quite well known for, you know, stalking, which is not what you think it is. It's the act of hunting deer with a rifle and shooting pigeons, rabbits, pheasants, all that stuff. Um, and, and, you know, that for me, that's quite a natural fit because I've always been obsessed with where food comes from. I think it just comes from being a greedy child, really. And once you realise that blackberries cost nothing, you, you sort of start to get into it. From there, you head into mushrooms and wild herbs and then you start thinking about you know, poaching a few trout out of the wily with a bread crust and a bit of string, you know, and then it sort of, you have to sort of head down the gun route and things get a bit more scary and grown up, but that's a natural progression. And lots of people are interested in foraging and aren't interested in shooting. And lots of people aren't interested in shooting and interested in foraging. And all the way around that spectrum with the fishing thrown in too, there's various different viewpoints and people find their own way through that. Um, I find it difficult to draw a distinction between them. I mean, for me, they're all just part of absorbing food from the environment. And I like about it uh, as much about foraging and shooting and, and, and hunting uh, together is it's really good for engendering a sense of understanding and respect for where your food comes from. Yeah, okay. How does this, um, I'm thinking around, I suppose, the maybe the controversy, but the land management, is, is hunting and, uh, I don't know, yeah, stalking and, you know, pheasants, all that kind of stuff, is that part of the natural way that the land is needs to be managed in the countryside? No. Or is this a fun activity? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, it's, so there's two, there's two ways to answer that question, okay? Uh, first and foremost, you know, pheasant shooting is a great example. It's the one that everyone knows and everyone understands, so let's talk about it. Okay, pheasants come from Asia. They are not a native English bird. They are reared in their millions and released for the business and sport of shooting. The fact that they end up being food is a secondary consideration. They're not hunted from a subsistence point of view. Okay, this is something that people who have got a few quid like to do. That's not saying that everyone who goes shooting is posh and loaded, that's not the case at all. But if you can afford a shotgun and some cartridges, you, you've definitely got more money than a lot of other people. Um, so the other way to look at it is to say, is shooting a positive or a negative for conservation in the UK? And I would advocate 100% that shooting is a net positive for conservation because it creates diversity of habitat and it has uh, various different, uh, it adds value to land uses that perhaps would not be used in other ways. So it's, it's a good thing overall, I think. Some of the aspects of more commercial shooting will change in the future and I think are not necessarily doing a huge amount of favours to us. That's not to say that a day where 500 birds are shot is a bad day intrinsically. There are a lot of places doing that incredibly well, making sure that all the birds are used, making sure that the habitat is not overly damaged by having that high volume of birds on the ground. 
And there are a few places that aren't doing it very well, but the market will take care of those. And the business of shooting is currently in the process of self-regulating. So there's a lot of changes going on there. I actually sit as a trustee for a charity called the Country Food Trust um, because I was a bit alarmed about the number of pheasants getting shot in the UK. And I'll put those numbers into context in a sec. Um, and it seemed very clear to me that somebody should be uh, buying that pheasant and turning it into meals for people in need. Um, and that's now happening. I wasn't you know, key in getting it off the ground. That all happened independently, but I've been working with the charity for the last sort of three or four years. We've just fed over 600,000 people in the last uh, four years. And we're aiming to get to a million by the end of the next shooting season, which will be February next year. Right. Um, so that's quite a, that's quite a, a so who are you feeding thing. with that? Uh, people in need. So right. we feed via food banks and mm. redistribution centers like fair share. We work with over 1,100 other charities. Yeah. So it's quite, um, you're, you're not just giving them a, uh, like a, a dead pheasant. Are you turning them into dishes? Is no. this, uh, putting we do two in? things. We do two things. If the I'm soup... thinking that they might not have the, uh, the know-how to go, well, well, I'll just, I'll just hang that in my garage. If for... you were properly hungry and, and none of us are more than three days away and two cancelled jobs from being that hungry. Okay. Um, it can happen to anyone. I've met a lot of people in the last few years who are relying on food banks, um, who are homeless or on the brink of homelessness or living in sheltered accommodation or just really in trouble. Um, and that could be you and me in a fortnight's time, particularly given yeah. what's uh, about to yes. hit the country. Um, and actually, I think if you were three days hungry and someone presented you with a pheasant, you'd very quickly work learn, it out learn how to work it out but of course a lot of people don't have cooking facilities and that's an issue so we do two things we make long life ultra heat treated pouches it's a brilliant process called retorting it's horrendous if you want to really ruin something that you've cooked really nicely stick it in a retort pouch and heat treat it for three hours that'll that'll oh, do really? it nicely okay. if you imagine a tin product but in a plastic pouch yeah. uh, all right they're plastic they shouldn't be plastic single-use plastic but they're an awful lot lighter to move around than tins, um, which actually has a carbon benefit. Anyway, we can't go into the ins and outs of it. We use pouches at the moment, we're looking at alternatives. So we have these ready meals, which don't even need to be refrigerated, and um, which can be literally opened and eaten from the pack. So if you're in a situation where you're sleeping rough, they can be handed out to you via a provider, service provider. And then through Fair Share and other networks, we also provide pallets or five kilo frozen bags of diced game meat um, to places where they're cooking stuff. And we've also got a raft of great chefs on board who've all donated recipes, um, which we've then had the fantastic James Murphy up in London has very kindly donated his time to photograph those recipes. Uh, and that's a, a download that's available to the charity kitchens that we work with. So they're not just getting this. I mean, back in the early days, Tim Woodward, who's the CEO of the charity, he went to the charities initially and said, look, do, you know, we've got all this pheasant meat. Are you interested? Expecting everyone to go, no, we don't want that. It's got lead in it. It's, you know, unethical as far as we're concerned. It's too controversial. And they all went, oh, yes, please. We'd love some protein because everyone's giving us vegetables. Everyone's giving us pasta. Everyone's giving us loads of stuff. Um, what we really need is, is good quality protein. And actually, we're in a great position to be able to provide that. So we're moving a lot of game now. And mm. um, we just need to keep raising the money to keep that going. Okay, so that's good. So before that, a lot of that would have been wasted then? Well, wasted to a degree. It was sloshing around in the marketplace. Some of it was going for animal feed. 
some of it was not making it as far as a game dealer. It was being rendered or incinerated, if you like. Um, that's not to say that nothing gets rendered or incinerated now. Um, some birds, when they're shot at, you, you know, and picked up by these are animals that are then picked up by a dog. They're not always in the prime condition that they would need to be to go to market. There are always going to be a few casualties. But the vast majority of shot game in this country gets eaten. Yeah. End of. Okay. Um, yeah. But, I mean, I, I hope for a day when there'll be, you know, people will get more fun out of a day shooting than than just counting the number of birds that they've shot. And yeah, well, I think you're you're impacting that. So your days, because your days are also around the cooking and the social side, and they're much yeah. smaller scale. Am I right in saying how does it yeah, how does absolutely. it work? How does a day well, with I, Tim in the field <laughs> a work? day a day with Tim Madams field sports? Yeah, uh, yeah, it consists of a small day's shooting with a big day's field. So we have fantastic, you know, hospitality. You arrive in the morning, you have breakfast, you have a good old chin wag, you get a safety briefing, and we'll go off and we'll shoot, and everyone will get some shooting and we'll have a nice day and let's say there are six or seven guns shooting we'll probably shoot 30 or 50 pheasants that sounds like a lot um, but that's quite a small day by modern standards um, and then you know we'll have an elevenses in the field which I've carefully prepared myself and some organic beers and some local charcuterie made with the game from the shoot and then we'll serve game at lunch which we have at the end uh, you know we're just packaging everything up so that we're selling an experience rather than a how many numbers of birds are going to kill kind of day, which is much more like the world of shooting I was familiar with in my childhood. Yeah. Um, and for me, my own personal opinions, there's nothing against anyone who, um, who is mad keen on doing a lot more shooting because if you only get to shoot three or four days a year, you probably want bigger days. If you are of the growing number of people um, who shoot a bit more than that, Perhaps you want to spread that out a bit more over the season. So um, we are part of the big and wonderful varied world that is shooting, but we're a very sort of niche market. Okay. And you, so you wrote a book around the game side of it. Yeah. So, so this was uh, recipes. This was what, the the history of game, where it yeah, comes from. I mean, yeah. Are we seeing a changing kind of, uh, I don't know, perspective from the public? Is this a growing area of our diet? Is it something that used to be really big and is kind of coming back into vogue? What's your general kind of feelings around Well, did it used to be really big? I mean, you know, if you go back a couple of thousand years, game was the only meat how being eaten, right? Yeah. Um, obviously, we farm meat now. And I would just want to quickly touch on those numbers, right? Because I said there are millions of, of game birds reared and released in the UK. And if we, if we put that number of pheasants, partridge and mallard at, say, 115 million birds you go wow what that's an insane number and it's a big number it's a quite a big number compared to ten thousand, right but um if we then say okay well in this country every year 800 million chickens are reared and killed and we probably import roughly the same amount as that from places like asia where animal welfare is really tip top um and you know, that starts to put that number into some kind of perspective. That doesn't mean to say that eating chicken's bad and eating pheasant's good. That's That would be to oversimplify a situation. But I think it is good to put that number, that sort of slightly scary reared and released game bird number into some kind of context. But yes, um, compared to five years ago, the game market in the UK is growing. People are eating a little bit more. Um, Export's quite strong, although what Brexit will do to that, I don't quite know. Um, and, you know, lots of people are, are eating it. Chefs love to work with it because it's different. 
Um, healthy eating people are quite keen on on venison in particular, um, but also pheasant and partridge because it's much lower in fat and cholesterol, and much higher in some source vitamins and things. So yeah, overall, it's a good thing to be eating. I mean, I wouldn't recommend that anyone who isn't eating any meat suddenly started eating <laughs> pheasant, right? That's up to them. Um, but I think if everybody who eats meat eats game a couple of times a year, if not more often, they'll start to appreciate it and have a bit more variety. It's got some flavour and some texture to it. A yeah. lot of lot of modern industrially farmed meat. Industrial, that's not quite the right word, is it? But Intensive. Yeah, or, or large-scale farmed meat for mass production for supermarkets can be very flat, flavourless, flabby and not that great so for you know for people who perhaps don't have access to top grade you know locally reared amazing meat game is a good way of engaging with some of that and it can be very cheap at certain times of the year or free if you know someone who shoots yeah seems to be a bit of a i, I, I you know i often wonder why it's not more popular and whether it's a reluctance around some of the species and cooking because it's a little bit unusual and a little bit different um do you, do you try and turn that into a simpler thing in the book is that yeah it? yeah well definitely well first we talk you through the whole thing so we go through all the species of game that are available and we talk about the difficult arguments you know the reared game versus the wild game so let's um we've talked about the, the reared game a little bit let's talk about wild game Let's yeah. take pigeon. One of my favourite birds to shoot, one of my favourite birds to eat. The wood pigeon is number one agricultural pest in the United Kingdom. Um, anyone who's ever stayed in the hotel as a young farmers conference will probably attest that that's not true and that it's drunk young farmers, but um, <laughs> it's a different meaning for agricultural pest. So pigeons cause you know millions of pounds worth of crop damage every year because they are now overwintering in bigger numbers because of the way we farm. So pigeon numbers have increased as an incidental factor of the way that we've changed farming. So pigeons have to be shot because there's no other way of controlling them effectively. If you scare them, they move to someone else's field and damage their crop. Ultimately, you're still damaging the national crop. So pigeons tend to get shot. They then tend to get eaten. So they are then incidental meat, right, of part of our agricultural system. And so whether you never want to eat a pheasant or whatever, as long as you live, if you eat meat and you understand ethical arguments, then to not eat pigeon is pretty mad. And I would almost go so far as to say it is protecting what various important vegetable crops that would be incredibly uh, difficult to farm in a financially useful way if you didn't control them at all. Um, so pigeon is very nearly a sort of vegan approved meat, right? I mean, <laughs> if you want your Weetabix, you've got to shoot pigeons. Yeah, no, it's interesting, um, isn't it? I think this is where the interrelationship is is nuanced, isn't it? Because I think vegans yeah. would argue that, uh, you know, yeah. Oh, no, I look cool. That's probably, probably a bad choice of words. But, <laughs> but if you want to talk about ethical meats, you're really going to struggle in the UK to find anything more ethical than pigeon and venison. Yeah. But in the same way, if you're going to talk about ethical vegetables, people need to realise that actually to grow the vegetables, you need to get rid of the pigeons. So just because you're only eating vegetables, potentially... Um, you know, it's a it's a nuanced and more complicated subject than people sometimes like to uh, to say. I suppose. So. Agreed. It's um, probably all too much for one short podcast. It, it, as you well. And you say short, but um, <laughs> oh yeah, sorry. Others others, <laughs> others might argue not short enough. Uh, <laughs> I can take mainly, up all the available oxygen once I get started. Sorry. Yeah, mainly uh, my brother actually who says that. Um, so so with all of that, you've got this... Uh, I love it. I love the fact that you've carved this kind of eclectic niche. It's not one thing. I now know what a portfolio career is, which is nice. <laughs> um, it's clearly got its pros and cons. Pleased you did it? Pleased you made the change? Yeah. Well, yeah, from a life point of view, no doubt uh, whatsoever. You know, I have... So 
after I gave up my job at River Cottage and my son was two, my daughter was born and she's now nearly eight. Um, and so I've got to be very involved at home uh, in the really early years of my children's childhoods. And that is something I will never regret, no matter how badly those sort of decade of dodgy finance has or will affect my um, financial stability in the future. I don't regret a, a minute of that. Not even that, oh my God, here's an 11 grand bill from the tax man and I've spent it moments. You know, I can I can genuinely hand on heart say that I would, I would happily have lived in a caravan to have that time with them. Um, although at the time, sometimes, of course, it doesn't feel like that. Um, so from that point of view, absolutely. Um, I am now in the lucky position that my kids are a bit older. And so we're starting to think, okay, maybe we can up our game a little bit with work. So I'm reaching out in various directions at the moment to try and upgrade uh, the work amounts that we're doing. And we're going to shift geographically from one part of the country to another yeah. so that we can um, change the house that we have in Devon, which is lovely, into hopefully a little small holding somewhere up in Scotland, which would be a bit of a dream for, for everyone in the, in the family. Um, but I don't, I don't really regret it. And I think if it doesn't pan out in the next couple of years, I can get a job. I haven't lost my skills. I can go and be um, a chef de cuisine or a head chef for somebody in an interesting and vibrant restaurant or hotel. And what have I lost? Nothing, really. I've gained some experience. I've had some fantastic experiences. I've shared a lot of time with my family and I've been over some financial bumps. But, you know... <laughs> That's the same if you're in... Well, maybe... Yeah, no, it's the same in everybody's finance. It's certainly the same as a, as a business kind of owner, entrepreneur. I mean, the tax bills are relentless. They just keep going <laughs> up. You've always spent the money. I know. Because I know. Um, well, that's you, need, you need the money, yeah. you know, not because yeah. you've spent it on yourself, but you just need it in the business. It's like, it's great when the quarterly VAT bill comes. And, well, you should have put the VAT aside. That's not your money. That's our money. You're just collecting it for us. And you're like, right, brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, kind of I do need to pay everybody and pay for all the stock. Well, and, they need to, yeah. and I know that they're making moves to make this easier, but they need to be taking that in real time. If you pay for something via card over, over the machine at the restaurant and 20% of it's VAT or whatever the VAT rate is, is in restaurants these days I don't know. Yep. Um, that should just go straight off to the government it should yeah. never hit your bank account it should never be anything to do with you and they're getting there right real time tax is coming I, I um, think they would love that yeah it's yeah. tricky uh, you know in seasonal businesses when yeah, you're trying to yeah, you know, save save VAT in the summer uh, when you can, and then in the winter, you know, you're just literally spending every penny that comes into the yeah, business on because you've got to pay. But I'm sure they would love it the doors if it just got taken straight away. So the um, the small holding idea is interesting. Then and moving to Scotland, so you refer to yourself a little bit as a as an economic migrant, I think, do you? But there's yeah. uh, there's different yeah, opportunities. I do. I do in Scotland. I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's anything wrong in that. I mean, Scotland is a beautiful place. I'm enchanted by it. There's loads of opportunity up there to do some cool stuff. Devon is far more populated, okay? So in theory, this is a better place to live and work. Um, but in a selfish way, Caroline and I and the kids, you know, we don't live in a town. We live quite rurally, but we don't have a detached house with a few acres, you know, of our own little bit, which is for me still the dreams, probably why I ended up at River Cottage in the first place is 
that ability to just sit in the middle of a little bit of land and, you know, go, oh, look, that's where the vegetables are supposed to be growing, but they failed, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I also love, I mean, my, one of my massive passions in life is mushrooms, right? I'm an absolute nutter for mushrooms. And because of that, Scotland, is, I mean, there's some great mushroom foraging around here in Devon. And after I've left, I'll happily share the locations for that with you. But um, I'm really looking forward to getting up to Scotland uh, to get, you know do more of that in a in a more fungus rich and diverse environment so uh, i'm looking forward to scotland for all sorts of different reasons and of course i will travel i already travel all over the country so in a way where i'm based doesn't really matter but if scotland will give us the dream of the the little house with the little bit of land then let's have that now because in 10 years time we still might not be there in Devon. I mean, it's a huge amount of money to buy something like that in Devon and the prices keep going up. So. Yeah. yeah, exciting. I did a, a, mushroom, a mushroom foraging podcast with John Rinston. Do you know John Rinston? Is he called no. the City Forager? Uh, he's uh, based a little bit further east of here. But anyway, have a listen. It was brilliant. And, I and what I, I really did, um, it, it literally opened my eyes to um, that sort of being present and being conscious in the forest. I love the forest. I go out and walk. We, we went in the new forest and I walk my dog there regularly. But actually, when you really slow down mm. and kind of get down on your hands and knees and you start to to look, amazing what you see, almost yeah. meditative kind of, uh, yeah, trance-like focus, I suppose, on the forest floor and what goes on. It's a definite. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about mindfulness, going foraging or fishing or hunting or shooting is going to bring you right into the moment. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. And mushrooms are incredible, right? We're only just beginning to understand fungus. Fungus have the ability to cure cancer. They have the ability to cure depression. They have the ability to treat addiction. They have the ability to enhance end-of-life care. They have the ability to um, prevent viruses. They have the ability to re-mediate uh, environments that have been damaged by uh, toxic waste. You know, you can grow oyster mushrooms on wood shavings that have been soaked in crude oil. And what you have left over is some much less dangerous hydrocarbon non-present material that can is organic matter and can be spread and used as a fertilizer and edible mushrooms that aren't poisonous. It's so, just, yeah, it's amazing, what, isn't it? You know, we are only beginning to understand the, 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 the power of mushrooms. Yeah. But as that understanding increases and people's awareness of them comes, as well as feeding a growing population with limited or finite resources, which is effectively a global issue, mushrooms are going to be a bigger part of that than people realise. Mm. And we can make plastic from mushroom mycelium that biodegrades. We can do all sorts of cool stuff with mushrooms. Um, fungi are the way forward. Yeah, no, it blew my mind. I had no idea about the mycelium and all the stuff that they can do. And uh, yeah, it, it literally blew my mind. Um, people go and have a listen uh, to that particular podcast. Um, so moving to Scotland, sticking to the same sort of stuff, coming yeah. down, traveling, hoping to replicate some of what you do down here up there. Yeah, you can, yeah, you can yeah, see, yeah, of course. Is there going to be a shed? Can you find a shed? You can just do it on your little... It uh, might have to be a bobby. Uh, I don't know. I mean, we'll, we'll have to Scotlandize it in some way. Um, it's interesting. We've just come back from a little trip to Scotland where I was trying to meet some people because I think it's good to get involved, you know, with some of the hospitality folk up there before we get there. Because yeah. that makes sense, right? Let's go it and does. meet them. Let's offer to do some stuff with them. Let's hopefully work for them a bit and then hopefully do, you know, bring some value um, uh, to... To, to them with with me um, and actually they all ask the same question are you going to open your own place <laughs> and I really hate being asked that question because the answer is always like Jackal and Hyde there's still this part of me that wants to be that to do that to just yeah 
and it's just going to be just me in my shed and you're going to come and have lunch and then that's it yeah, and there's nothing get, else you're given 25 covers yeah exactly yeah, it's my and, menu and then and then it'll be oh why don't you open the evenings why don't yeah. you do this why don't, yeah. could why you do you this for us? but we don't really want that why don't you get a license why don't you, we need some staff Let's, uh, 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 stop stop into my life. <laughs> stop with the brain so so no I don't yeah there might there might be a shed there might yeah. be a shed okay. but I don't think there's going to be a uh, a Tim Madams restaurant. No. Okay, well, uh, congratulations for carving your niche and for winging it, as we all are fundamentally, and managing to uh, to eke a living. And I'll, I'll, it'd be good. I'll come up and see your small holding. Please make some sort of regenerative, happy, beautiful farm. Uh, yeah. That would be lovely. We'll try fact, and I do might that, just come and be a neighbour. I think I, I can yeah, see. I can definitely <laughs> see the appeal. I can just do the podcast via Skype around the world by then. So yeah, that'll be, yeah, so no, that'll problem be fine. no problem um, at all. If people want to follow your journey and potentially come on some of your courses or come to the shed, is it all in one place? Where should they go to find out oh, about all this? You probably stuff? hit the website, I guess, as a as a good place to land, which is timmadams.com. If you're interested in shooting or coming shooting with me, then that's timmadamsfieldsports.com. We have two separate websites for that which is uh, interesting and from there you can find me on instagram and twitter and facebook and linkedin and all the usual sort of millions of places that you have to have a presence people can find you perfect uh on the humansofhospitality.co.uk website i will put up links to most of those that i can find and we also put the show notes up so people who i can't imagine anybody would want to fast track through the conversation and it's too late really by the time they've got to this point to find out they could have <laughs> but maybe for the next episode uh you can go there and you can see the show notes and you can skip through to the bits that uh, that you want to listen to but um good luck thank you for sparing my time tim thank and you. letting me into your house absolute pleasure mark thank you very much for coming to see me Thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast and remember that on the website humansofhospitality.co.uk every week we put on some show notes and some links through to the various websites or social media that are mentioned and we also do a nice little breakdown of that week's conversations into specific topics so you can jump through the podcast and just listen to some of the highlights if you wish. If you've not done so already, if you could leave us a review on iTunes or one of the other podcast players of your choice that would be hugely appreciated thank you so much and uh, we'll be out with another episode next monday